It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode 31 in our series entitled Spiritual Lessons from World War. Did I just say that? Uh, spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. You can tell uh, that I've, I've had a lot of World War talk uh, over the years. Uh, but this is covering a period of time from 1914 to 1974. We have just crested into the 1960s, just to give you an idea of where we're at. I'm not exactly sure how many messages are going to be in this series. It's, you know, it would be nice if I could round it off at like 40, but it looks like as of right now, it's coming in at like 39. Isn't that terrible? Uh, what an awkward number that is. But that's just how it's playing out so far. And so somehow between now and the end, you know, which is this is episode 31, so and 39, I need to cover quite a bit. And so I've been strategizing in my study times not even just the messages that I'm uh, trying to prep, but how I'm supposed to sculpt the end of this. Uh, because it's a significant time in our history. When you get into the 60s, it's a tumultuous time. And you, of course, if you've been listening to the series, you'd say, well, weren't the 20s a tumultuous time? Weren't the 30s a tumultuous time? Weren't the 40s a tumultuous time? Yes. And weren't the 50s a tumultuous time? You're right. Okay, so this whole time is a tumultuous time. But if those were tumultuous times, and this is tumultuous on steroids, uh, this is something else. Uh, the 60s, uh, the, uh, most Americans actually believed they weren't going to survive the 60s. They actually thought that we were going to be destroyed by a nuclear holocaust. And so it, it's just interesting to try and get into the skin of this time period. Very, uh, It's the extremities uh, of things, and people are making extreme decisions. We're beginning to toss out our old moorings and the way that we were. See, the 50s are sort of this picture of... Uh, religious America, and where there's sort of a return to the things that matter the most. And then there's going to be a rejection of that in the 60s. And so the drug uh, use, the psychedelic uh, drug use is going to explode. And people are going to be looking for another form of reality. In a strange sense, guys, if you just look at our world today and you see a rejection of the old and this invitation into this new fangled thinking, which doesn't have any moorings in anything biblical, it's like if it's biblical, then they throw it out. So what is the opposite of biblical? That's what they embrace. And that's actually very similar to the 60s. So I don't know if you, if you followed the whole series, you'll see these swings that take place. You'll see these moral movements, and then you'll see these anti-moral movements. And we've gone back and forth, and this is sort of the pinnacle of it uh, in the 60s. So uh, my last message was uh, introducing the idea of the Freedom Rides. So I had made it clear that John F. Kennedy had already been elected president, and so we're swinging from a Republican uh, president with Dwight Eisenhower and now we're swinging uh, more into the Democrat uh, category uh, of leadership over our country. And this one is called Hoover's New Boss. If you listen to my sermons, uh, then you're going to be familiar with a lot of this storyline because I did cover it. In fact, I didn't actually expect to stick it in my Daily Thunder series, which is why I used it in a sermon because it was so fascinating. But it's, and this will make sense, if, if you even... If you heard this, the sermon, then you'd even know which, what, what that is, Hoover's new boss. There's quite a few Hoovers uh, in this, 
in this time period, we have uh, Herbert Hoover, who was a president uh, back in the late 20s, and that's not who we're talking about. Uh, there was a Hoover vacuum, which I think still may be around as far as I know, and that's not what we're talking about. And this is J. Edgar Hoover, not Herbert Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, who is the director of the FBI. And he has been the director of the FBI since 1924. And for most of us, that doesn't make you know, who cares? But in a government position, when every time there's a change of presidency, and even during a presidency, a president has the right to dismiss the director of the FBI or to keep him. And the fact that he has been around since 1924, and every president has chosen to keep him, is a marvel to the nation. In the 50s, J. Edgar Hoover was probably the quintessential American. He was like the picture of America. He is the one that we were most proud of. He was probably, you know, likely the most famous American, the most well-liked American. Something's going to happen in the 60s, and even to this day, J. Edgar Hoover is a curse word to most people, and they hate J. Edgar Hoover, and there's reasons for that, and a lot of that's going to unfold in the 60s. And the way he's going to handle the civil rights movements, Martin Luther King Jr. particularly, he is going to be the arch nemesis of Martin Luther King. And ironically, at first, everyone is going to be cheering on Hoover and even agreeing with Hoover. And then you're going to see public opinion polls begin to switch to the point where Martin Luther King is now one of the greatest heroes in American history and J. Edgar Hoover, one of the ultimate goats in, in history. Uh, goat not meaning greatest of all time uh, in that context. Uh, so I have a term that I've used uh, many times, and that's called leveling up. Uh, leveling up is a hard thing to describe, but it's, it's something that you'll recognize as a Christian, even though you might have a different phrase for it, a different term for it. But that there, there is a grace that I have to live my life. And I don't oftentimes recognize that I have a grace to live my life. I mean, I do intellectually, theologically, I know how I live my life, but sometimes you just take it for granted and you're just moving along with grace. And then God wants to grow you up. And so it's almost like you, you, you come up and there's like this, um, this whole new level that is up here that you're called to. And so you go boom, into the wall of this one and your grace that you currently have doesn't seem to match the new call. And you can say, well, that sounds sort of rude. Why would God allow that to happen? Well, I don't know that it's God's intent that you know, we hang out down here when we're supposed to be up here. I think he sometimes just needs us to awaken to the fact that we need more grace. And what we are called to actually is going to demand more supernatural substance. What typically happens when you run into this wall is you dig into your own pockets to try and make up the difference. And you're like, okay, God, I, for some reason, I, what I've always had isn't quite matching my need right now. And so we oftentimes try in our own grit and our own determination to get up to that next level because we figure, oh, we've tapped into God's maximum grace, so now it must be up to me. When in actuality, the opposite is true. When you meet that leveling up challenge, God wants you to freshly go after him and say, God, I need more. Whatever you've given me in the past has always been sufficient, but now I seem to be coming up short. I need more. One of the things that this message is going to cover is this idea of continuous growth. We have a tendency to get sort of old and decrepit and uh, 
religious in our systems where we have always been at this level and we're really not that excited about going up to this level. And so instead of moving up, we justify this level. And that is becoming religious as opposed to keeping that free-flowing movement of grace and the Spirit's leading in your life because he's always taking you upward. Okay, so we're going to see that in history uh, too. So J. Edgar Hoover, he's at this time, at the election of Kennedy, he's 70 years old. And uh, so the guy is, uh, you know, he's getting up there, guys, and uh, it's, you know, we could be a little concerned for him, you know, because he's sort of thinking like a 70-year-old. No, I'm not trying to criticize any of you that are 70 years old, but you know what I mean? How you, you look at uh, the younger generation, you shake your head, and you're like, when I was a kid, we would have never done that. When I was a kid, we showed respect to authority. When I was a kid, you know, we would look the you know, policeman in the eye, shake his hand, and say, thank you, sir, for doing a good job. Instead of spitting on him, can you believe this? And so this older mentality, I, mean, I can even just hear my grandparents, and my, my grandpa specifically, you know, and he was just always upset with the younger generation, and the younger generation was taken for granted the freedoms and the liberties that they have. And here's what's weird is I now could easily start talking like that. I know what it's like to, and I'm not even a grandpa yet. You know, I made sure we waited 10 years to have kids so that I could be a grandpa later in life and I wouldn't have to be a grandpa so soon. But I'm still not a grandpa, but I still feel grandpa tendencies inside of me to do a little grumbling about the younger generation and how the younger generation doesn't get it. They don't realize this. I mean, they're going off the edge of a cliff. That's J. Edgar Hoover in this story, guys. He's at that point where he has fought battles for our country. He has stood against, you know, the mob. He has stood against, you know, those, uh, you know, John Dillinger, uh, you know, and Pretty Boy Floyd, and he's put them down. He's he stood against communism, and he has he stood against so many different things that have come against our country. And now these new people have no idea the wars that have been fought, the battles that have been won, and they're taking it for granted, and they're trying to change the whole thing and throw out all the good stuff and put in new stuff. It's like, come on. So here's a picture of J. Edgar Hoover uh, for you. And everything in this series technically should be black and white, but I have a couple color photos in this one. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy, when I say Hoover's new boss, now remember I said that uh, Hoover's 70? Bobby Kennedy's 35. I don't know if you could do your math on that. That's exactly half. And Hoover has always sort of ruled the roost in Washington. Presidents tremble before J. Edgar Hoover. We, you know, there's a lot of wonderment of why. Like, is it because he had all the dirt on every president and he just sort of held it over them? Because no president ever ran him out of office. He always held the position of FBI director until he died. He actually died as FBI director. So no president ever kicked him out. And is that because he was holding dirt on them? That's, of course, one of the great accusations that's been leveled against Kennedy or against Hoover. But Bobby Kennedy is going to come in uh, and he is going to become Hoover's new boss. Now, I'm going to give you the backstory to that. But a 35-year-old is suddenly going to be over the 70-year-old. And that is going to make for some very funny stories. So... Bobby is the, is the president's brother. So uh, Bobby is, the pres is, is John F. Kennedy's brother, and he's going to become the attorney general. But let's go back in time a little and sort of fill in some of the gaps. Beverly Gage, from her book G-Man, 
says, John F. Kennedy campaigned as the candidate of the future, envisioning the 1960s as a glorious new frontier filled with invention, innovation, imagination, a turning point in history. Hoover was not looking for any new frontiers, though. He wanted a president who would extend the politics of the 1950s, a decade when the FBI had achieved so much fame, success, and influence. Have you ever had that in your life, too, where you, you have a season, it's just like, this is the way I want it. And then the world threatens, or someone around you threatens, the situations around you threaten to change all of that. And we don't like that. It is very easy for us to get stuck in the mud. And the, what is the description? Invention, innovation, and imagination. When you get a little older, that becomes threatening to you because you want America the way it's always been for you. Ironically, if you've been going through this series, you know that America has sort of always had problems. We have a tendency to look back, though, and say, oh, the good old days. Well, those good old days still were days marred with a whole bunch of problems, but we still have a tendency to look back on the good old days. Beverly Gage continues, Kennedy squeaked through with 49.72% of the popular vote to Nixon's 49.55%. 303 to 219 in the Electoral College, one of the closest elections in presidential history. Many Republicans, see if this sounds familiar, many Republicans viewed the results as a case of outright theft, accusing the Kennedy team of manipulating votes in Democratic strongholds such as Texas and Chicago. Doesn't that sound like, you know, we're reliving history here? What's, what's going on? Fletcher Nibble, who was a columnist and a Kennedy insider, he's going to hear about uh, Kennedy keeping Hoover. So one of Kennedy's first decisions, even though it's lacking a parenthesis there, I know it's dis distracting some of you. Uh, one of Kennedy's first decisions is he's going to keep uh, J. Edgar Hoover as FBI director. And of course, you've got to be kidding. Everything's going to be new. We have a new frontier, invention, innovation, ingenuity, and we're going to keep the old guy. And uh, so this is what Fletcher Neville says. We are off to the new frontiers via the same old trading post. Beverly Gage says this, most of his other national security appointments were bolder, more in line with the vague new frontier themes of youth and progress. Defense Secretary Robert McNamara was just 44, named as the Harvard whiz kid who engineered a financial turnaround at Ford. National Security Advisor George Bundy was younger still. At 34, he had become Dean of Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and now at 41, he was to be Kennedy's inside man on foreign policy. And then there was the president's pick for attorney general, the youngest and most controversial of them all. After announcing Hoover's reappointment, Kennedy floated the idea of tapping his younger brother Robert, or Bobby, just 35 years old, for the position of Hoover's boss. Beverly Gage continues, By reputation, Bobby was potentially the worst of the lot. First, he was the president's brother, an act of nepotism that smacked of royal family arrogance. Second, he was widely known in Washington as the least likable and most pugnacious of the Kennedys, the Black Prince in Adlai Stevenson's words. By the 1960 presidential election, the memos accumulated in Bobby's bureau file. And, well, the, the memos accumulated in Bobby's bureau file were nothing if not inconsistent, veering wildly, wildly from high praise, most cordial, to general condemnation, completely uncooperative. 
So when Bobby himself visited the director's office on December 14, 1960, to ask whether or not he should accept appointment as attorney general, he must have wondered what was about to ensue. Hoover apparently felt that he had to say yes to the president's brother. I didn't like to tell him that, he later explained. But what could I say? So could you imagine, this is actually a tactical, uh, I mean, it's tactically brilliant. Is Bobby himself is going to come to Hoover and... Hoover doesn't like Bobby, but he's the president's brother. And the first thing Hoover has to do is make sure he's on the right side of the president. So Bobby comes to Hoover, sits down and says, what do you think? My brother's talking to me about becoming attorney general, which is basically your boss. Uh, what do you think? What's Hoover supposed to say? No, I think it's a bad idea. It's the president's brother. So he's like, yeah, I think it's okay. And what does Hoover say? I didn't like to tell him that, but what could I say? Pretty smart. Beverly Gage says, John Kennedy announced his brother's appointment on December 16th, two days after Bobby's meeting with Hoover. Almost immediately, the press began to speculate about how the director might respond to his 35-year-old boss, gently reminding the younger man that the indestructible Mr. Hoover is thus far undefeated in the wars of Washington. It's sort of hard because you guys don't have a background on J. Edgar Hoover, so you don't know how powerful he is. But he's likely the most powerful man in the country at this time. And he has his ways. And if you've ever worked for J. Edgar Hoover as an FBI guy, you know his ways. And they're tried and true. He is an exact guy. I mean, your tie has to be straight. You wear a suit coat. You wear a hat when you go outside. They're, your shoes are polished. He is constantly examining. He'll fire you for the smallest thing. He runs a tight ship, guys. And then, John, and then Bobby Kennedy is assigned as his boss. Well, guess what? Bobby Kennedy does not run a tight ship. So we have a very, very unique moment in history here. So we have some problems. I'll just start laying out the problems. The first problem is the shirt sleeves. Beverly Gage says it this way. There was, first, the matter of shirt sleeves. Though Bobby usually showed up to work in a suit and tie. Whew, that's good to know. Well, because, I mean, you have to wear a suit and tie. This is government work. As the day wore on, he often shed these encumbrances, first removing the jacket. What? Oh, no. Then the neckwear. What? Then loosening his collar and rolling up his cuffs. To Hoover, this was tantamount to reporting for work in pajamas. Bureau regulations still required agents to wear dark suits, white shirts, and ties at all times, along with hats whenever they ventured outside. What is this guy doing? And he's the boss of everyone. I mean, this is, I mean, what was the statement? Tantamount to reporting for work in pajamas. Now, what's interesting about this is for us today, we have a very, very lax dress code compared to ye olden days. Even when my dad was working, and so I'm growing up in the 70s, 80s, and my dad never went to work without a suit on. Always with a tie. So this is even after this, that my dad always dressed, and his shoes were always polished, and he had to dress a certain way, so his entire closet was full of suits, all pressed. He'd take them to the dry cleaners. He had this whole rotation process. And that was normal. There was a certain etiquette that Americans had, especially in the business world, but this is in the governmental world, even amped up from that. We represent our country, guys. And Bobby Kennedy is going to skulk into the attorney general position and actually have the gall to remove his jacket during the day? 
loosen his necktie, actually then remove his necktie, roll up his shirt sleeves. It's like, you have got to be kidding. That's like being in your pajamas uh, at work. It's really funny to all of us. But to recognize this is old meets new. This is an old mentality meets a new one. Now, remember how I started out by talking about leveling up? Sometimes one of the hardest things for us is not is when we're when when that new vision, that new way of living is entering in. Sometimes just a change in our culture, and we get caught up on the wrong things. Like for instance, I think most of us would agree that it's really not a moral issue we're dealing with here, but it feels like it because it's it's like the manner, the respect, the honor side of life, and yet Hoover's really stumbling over this. Hoover viewed this. This Remember this going to work in your pajamas thing. Hoover viewed this not merely as a convenient uniform, but as a symbol of professionalism, a sign that they took their job seriously. And this is a quote from Hoover. It is ridiculous to have the attorney general walking around the building in his shirt sleeves, he complained to bureau aides. Suppose I had a visitor waiting in my entrance room. How, how could I have introduced him? And for most of us, you're like, just introduce him. It's the attorney general. So it's the brother of the president. I don't think they'll mind. But to Hoover, it's like he can't even introduce them. Okay, guys, that's just the first problem. We have more. Problem number two, the rumpus room. This is pretty funny. So Bobby had other bad habits too. For his permanent office at Justice, he rejected the Attorney General's traditional quarters in favor of a cavernous wood-paneled reception room. Enormous, one reporter recalled, as long as a football field. And in fact, he did play touch football in the office, a Kennedy family diversion now brought indoors. Bobby also liked to play darts, flinging sharp-tipped metal projectiles at a target on the wall, pocking up the fine walnut paneling when he missed. Hoover saw both games as pure desecration, desecration of government property. Okay, now, it's, it's interesting because we, we immediately in this room are splitting into two camps. There's those that lean Hoover, and there's those that lean Bobby in this. Isn't that interesting? And you see it inside of yourself, that some of you are like, yeah, rumpus room, I love it. Some of you are like, this is government property, it's wood paneling, you know how expensive that is? You don't throw darts at that. I mean, it, it just depends, and it sort of shows something about your personality right there. By the way, Eileen Hoover. It's very stressful for me now that Bobby has come in and I really want him to put his jacket back on. Do not throw darts in the rumpus room. By the way, you see that in my parenting a little too. It's like, ha. Ah. And by the way, Hoover's not very attractive in this storyline, so I don't really like identifying with him. Problem number three, Bobby's random wanderings. So Beverly Gage continues, even on his own turf, Hoover was not entirely safe. Bobby liked to wander the halls at Justice, including the FBI's offices, popping into various meetings, introducing himself personally to even the lowest-level clerks. You don't talk with them. They're a low-level clerk. Hoover found the practice outrageous, a violation of accepted hierarchy and an implicit warning that his men would have to be on their toes at all times. I mean, he could stop and talk to anyone. Isn't that amazing? See, I, I actually really like... Bobby at a certain level. Now, there's certain things I do not like about Bobby uh, Kennedy, but there's certain things like socially, I like the fact that he breaks the hierarchy barrier and he just goes to the lowest level clerk and starts talking with him. But Hoover 
to him, that's a violation of their, their entire tried and true system, which is all based on respect and order and command. It's like a military system. Beverly Gage continues, sometimes the attorney general even appeared unannounced in Hoover's personal office. On one occasion, he brought several of his children to visit while Hoover was out and allowed them to rummage through the director's papers. <laughs> All right, guys, are you, are you leaning Hoover or Bobby on that one? Because it shows a little something about your personality. Uh-oh, guys, problem number four, the Hoover buzzer. Beverly Gage says, for personal exchanges, Bobby made Hoover come to him by means of a loud, insistent buzzer placed on Hoover's desk. According to one agent, Hoover had been perplexed when he first saw the contraption, a strange object with wires trailing off under the carpet. Once a technician explained what it was, Hoover supposedly ordered it ripped out and placed on Gandhi's desk. Helen Gandhi was his personal assistant. The attorney general insisted that he wanted direct access to Hoover, though, and the device was reinstalled. Do you imagine Hoover? He's 70 years old. He's been in command of basically the nation. And now he has this 35-year-old punk who is buzzing him. And all of us sort of secretly like that fact, don't we? <laughs> Problem number five, Brumus. As a child of wealth, Bobby knew instinctively that power could be exercised not just by imposing rules, but by flouting them. This at least was the message delivered by Brumus, a lumbering, slobbering Newfoundland dog. Bobby made a habit of bringing the dog into the office where Brumus proceeded to mark territory by urinating on the carpets. <laughs> According to legend, this is Beverly Gage, Brumus once deposited a steaming pile near the entrance to Hoover's reception room. Hoover assembled an executive conference to determine what to do about the unnerving situation in which the attorney general was arrogantly flouting the law that forbade animals in federal offices. In the end, though, Brumus remained a fixture of the Kennedy Justice Department, a symbol of all that separated it from Hoover's bureau. So Brumus is sort of a famous character in history. He was just always with Bobby. So Bobby and Brumus. Isn't that a great name, too? Brumus. So there's Brumus, a nice close-up of Brumus. You can't help but like him. So there he is in the tennis court with Bobby. There he is in a, a private meeting with uh, Ted Kennedy, and they're walking uh, together with Brumus. The two different views on Brumus. So how you handle Brumus is, is like a, a telltale sign of, of where you're at. When Brumus comes into your life, how are you responding? Because we all have these moments where we've had a nice clean office, and then Brumus shows up. Uh, I remember my personal Brumus, uh, her name was Gracie, the dog, and uh, Harper uh, loves dogs. And so Harper, when she was just a little munchkin, uh, Nana and Pops, Leslie's parents, took her out to a dog shelter. Not to get a dog, but to just see dogs, supposedly. The next thing you know, we get this plea of how this one dog has captured Harper's heart, and the dog's name is Gracie. And Gracie had a red flag on it, which meant, you know, not for kids. You know, it had some serious social challenges. No one had ever asked to see Gracie. You know how, you know, people will walk through and, and see the dogs that uh, everyone So no one had asked to see Gracie. Well, Gracie ends up, you know, falling in love with Harper, comes home. And now Gracie uh, sort of is like Brumus in the Ludie house. The Ludie house has always smelled nice. 
until, you know, we'd have some diaper issues with little babies and things like that, but daddy was very watchful to get that smell out, right? Because that doesn't belong here. I'm very much like Hoover as I study this story. I'm like, ah, I don't really want to be like Hoover, guys, but I, I have a tendency to like things a certain way. And so I had this one continued problem, and that was that Gracie found that underneath my desk, like right where my feet would lie underneath my desk, was the, her favorite place to plop things to, you know, leave presents. Let me just put it that way. And uh, so every day I had this, I'd sit down at my desk like, what? And I'd look, oh. And so I was getting so frustrated with this. I remember I told Leslie something like, uh, you know, Gracie may have to go because there is no way I can just continue to have this, you know, under my desk. How can I even work like this? And Leslie made some statement like, do you want a nice smelling office or do you want the heart of your child? And what I said is, can't I have both? Why do I have to choose between those? It's like, oh, to have the heart of my child, I need to have a stinky office. It's like, what kind of deal is this? But at the same time, there's a truth there that you're always having to make your measurements and your judgments of what matters most. And sometimes when you're in that Hoover mode of life, there are things that need to, that are coming into your life that you need to learn to adapt to because if you don't adapt to them, you're actually harming something that's of higher value in your life. And when God is trying to move us forward, oftentimes he allows a brumus into our life, an inconvenience or something that is changing an old mode, a way that we've always liked to do it, but it's changing. And we want to fight that just the way Hoover is in this story. Two ways of dealing with brumus. Here's Beverly Gage. She says, when, where Hoover saw chaos and impudence, others saw a much needed infusion of energy. More than a change of policy, a sharp change in the mood of the Justice Department, with staid federal attorneys suddenly swept up in the urgency of the new political decade. As much as one can judge so vague a thing, morale has risen. So everyone is actually sort of enjoying work again, because Bobby's sort of come in and added this new life. Hoover's not enjoying work. He's upset all day long, 24-7. But actually, it's helping the atmosphere. He's bringing a looseness, and Hoover's like, we don't need a looseness to the environment. And yet, sometimes a looseness is needed. Laughter is actually required right here. And these are things that are a tug and a pull on all of us as we move forward in life. The muddy paws of Brumus. When the youthful invention, innovation, imagination comes roaring into your office, how do you respond? So there's an odd benefit to Brumus in our life. And I'm going to lay it out clearly for you. It exposes the religious spirit. Now, most of us don't know to call something a religious spirit. A religious spirit, I mean, this is an ancient tactic used against us by the enemy. And it's to take something that is right and to turn it into a rule. And then we follow the rule instead of our Savior. And when you start following a rule instead of the Savior, instead of God himself, that is religion. And it usually starts out based on something true, where you were actually following God, but then following God became a rule instead of an actual relationship. And you ended up in religion instead of truth. 
And that's what Brumus brings about. Brumus is showing that Hoover is actually needing to move forward, but he has positioned himself to say, this is the way it always needs to be. And no one can even talk to him about it. Hey, well, Hoover, what if we change this? No, you can't change this. This has been the way we've been doing it since 1924. It's always worked. And he's stuck. And he's becoming a picture of religiosity instead of the young, vibrant lawyer that he was when he took over the, the bureau in 1924. And he was going to change things. He was going to alter the way things worked. And so he did, but now he's altered everything and he just wants to keep it that way. So what is the religious spirit? It's when you elevate the rule above the relationship. And so where you value your rule so much that you're willing to actually discard a relationship to keep it. My office is always going to smell good. So we're going to get rid of Harper's dog. And that's a higher value system, right? Because I would be elevating the rule of having a clean, nice smelling office over the heart of my daughter. Not a good idea, guys, by the way, just in case you're wondering if that's a good decision. So Eric Ludi and the religious spirit. I don't really like to associate myself with this. I, had a, I, I went through a sermon on this, and then I think I even re- reflected on it the next week. So I've shared these stories, oh, it seems like in the past four months, somewhere along the line. But they're actually very, very significant, I think, to define something. And that is what I call the sidewalk shove and the hotel shh. Is there are certain things that I desire, and that is I want to be respectful to you. And so I always want to give way. I don't want to be the one hogging up the, you know, the, the sidewalk. If someone needs to get down, hey, I'll move out of the way and let you through. I always want to defer to someone else as if they're more important than me. And you could say, that's a very good thing, Eric. Okay, now you take that very good thing, and now you translate it into the Ludi home. Where when I'm with this gaggle known as the Ludi 8, and we're making our way around in public places... It can be somewhat stressful, with, especially when you have young kids and they don't get it. They don't realize they're standing in the way of someone. There's someone that's trying to get through, and I have one of my kids just sort of standing there. And so that's where we could call it the uh, sidewalk shove. This, this happened at uh, Disneyland where my family was just sort of hogging up this whole key passageway at Disneyland, and this other family was coming through. And where my instinct is to move out of the way... Now I have a whole family. So what did I do? I sort of shoved my whole family out of the way so this other family could come through. And I was rude to my family so that I could be sensitive and honorable to a family I don't know. And that right there is what we could call religion, where you actually take the people that you are first called to, to show love and care and kindness to, and you show rudeness to them so that you can honor a rule which is, I always get out of the way for the incoming traffic. See? See how honorable I am? See how good of an example of Jesus Christ I am right here? Shoving my family off the sidewalk so someone else can use it. Now, there's, it's obviously different if I were to consult with my family and say, hey guys, there's a family coming through. We're standing in the way. How about we move out of the way to help them? And everyone's like, yeah, we should do that. Let's all be like Jesus together. And we move out of the way. That's a totally different storyline. That wasn't the storyline, unfortunately. Instead, it came, became the Ludi sidewalk shove, okay? And I'm going to describe that as very Hoover-esque, where Hoover has a system that has always worked for him, and now things have built up around him called like six kids and a wife, and now you know, to shove them out of the way to maintain his system. And then I also have the hotel shh. 
Okay, there's a certain way, I've, I've stayed in many hotels, okay, and there's nothing worse than at two in the morning, some, you know, party shows up in the hotel and is making their way, banging, slamming doors, you know, they have their <laughs> down the hallway, and they're talking full volume. And so there, there's a certain rule or a certain principle, I don't want to call it a rule yet, principle that Eric has always lived by, and that is show respect to the sleeping people in a hotel. And so, you know, as I'm making my way along, I'll be very quiet as I'm walking. And then even as I try and close my hotel door, you notice it's almost impossible to make a hotel door close softly. It's like, you know, it's all something, kink, kink, at the very end. It's like, okay, well, and I'm even stressed about that, right? And that's silence. I'm like an Indian tiptoeing my way down the hall. So now add a wife and six kids to that that don't have the same sensitivity levels, Right? And so there we are. We always show up at a hotel at like midnight to two in the morning. What is the deal with the looties? And so we're showing and we get, we don't just have one of those carts. We have two of those carts. So like, king, king, king. And one has a wheel that's like, and I'm like, shh, shh. The whole while I'm like, people. So I'm trying to indicate there's people asleep. Well, what's funny is Leslie will always have this talk with me. It's like, it's hard for me not to think that you're far more concerned about these people in these rooms that you'll never meet that maybe aren't even there <laughs> instead of us. See, that's religion, where my rule is higher than the relationship. That instead of caring for my family in those moments, it does not mean that the opposite is more true. Like, let's make as much noise as we can as we go through the hallway. It's not the opposite that is more true. It's the disposition of my soul, which is willing to be rude to my family so that I can maintain a sensitivity to these other people. I'm putting a rule above a relationship, and that's the spirit of religion. So I'm going to now flip that and say, what about the odd benefits of Hoover's tried and true system? Because Hoover is stuck in the mud. You know what? That's a nice benefit to someone else. And that is that it exposes the rebellious spirit. You know that Bobby is going to totally do all that he's doing to challenge Hoover's system. I mean, I could read Bobby like a book. In fact, even in history, because we have our behind the scenes quotes from Bobby of how he thinks about Hoover. He mocks and makes fun of Hoover all the time. He, he wants to stick it in Hoover's eye. He, as the 35-year-old young guy, wants to watch Hoover wriggle because he's his boss now. And I'm just going to say, guys, that is just as equally wrong as the opposite. Hoover's wrong. Bobby's wrong. And Bobby is going to showcase what we could call rebellion in this situation where he is not going to show regard and honor. He's in a sense going to say, this is the way I want it and I'm going to stick it to him. So the rebellious spirit gets revealed. What's the rebellious spirit? It's when you elevate your individualism over intimacy, where over the relationship, you're going to say, this is the way I want it. And you're going to elevate what you want instead of what would actually minister grace in relationship. What is supposed to lead us as believers? Is it religion? Is it rebellion? Because right now, those are the only two options on the table. We have Hoover's example. We have uh, Bobby's example. Or mysterious option number three. I have a hunch you guys are going to vote with mysterious option number three. It just sounds mysterious to start with, and you want to know what it is. Yes, as believers, we are led by mysterious option number three, not by religion, not by rebellion. 
In the Old Testament, remember the heavenly cloud? It led the Israelites and supplied them shade in the desert as long as they followed it. Let's look at Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. Exodus 40, 37. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey, whether by day or by night, whether, whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. So sometimes the cloud would move. And when it would move, well, Israel would move. But sometimes it stayed. And if it stayed, Israel would stay. And so when the cloud moves, Israel moves. When the cloud stays, Israel stays. Now, this is obviously a picture to us in the Old Testament of the leading of the Spirit of God in the New Testament. I shouldn't say obviously. It just is, right? whether it's obvious or not. That's what this is. This is the presence of God. This is his leadership over our life. And what you're going to see there is there's going to be times when God is going to stay. And when he stays, we need to stay. And so for Bobby, that's really hard because he's ready to move forward. Hey, we have some advancements to make. But when the cloud stays, Hoover's like, yeah, yeah, let's stay here forever. This is great. And then when it moves, Hoover's complaining. It's like, well, I I really like it where we were. And Bobby's like, finally, let's move. And so what you see is this cloud is mysterious option number three. It's not the wants and the desires of the religious spirit. It's not the wants and desires of the rebellious, which is how we usually are disposed. In fact, did you know that Eric Ludy, though I could default maybe in my mind a little more clearly in the religious category, even though I don't like saying that, because that, that's, I mean, the stuck in the mud, stick in the mud type of notion is not something I want to identify with. Did you know I can feel the same rebellion as Bobby in this story? If you start sticking religion around me, I will immediately want to violate it, just like you guys do. It's, it's a weird thing. When it, that's because these expose different aspects in us. When we're around something that's stuck in the mud and religious, we have a tendency to say, I'm violating that. And when you're around something rebellious, you want to get your game on and you want to organize your life. You don't want to be like that. And so both of these things, Brumus and you know, Hoover's tried and true system are exposing something in us. And that is our need for something different than rebellion or religion as our answer. We need this cloud. So the principle of the cloud, don't get stuck in the desert sand of a previous powerful work. Hoover is famous for what he's done in the past years, since 1924. And he wants to just keep it that way. He wants to lock it in and say, guys, the cloud doesn't move from here. We're just staying right here. But you can't get stuck in the desert sand of a previous powerful work, and Hoover is. And he's going to fall to pieces. His entire reputation is going to go on meltdown in the 60s because of this. Another principle of the cloud. Don't move from your desert place too hastily. Remain there until he leads you forth. And this is, of course, the great lesson for Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy wants to move everything forward, and yet he needs to show respect for the fact that it's not just his whims that should be leading. And he's going to get himself into trouble as well. Jesus wasn't religious or rebellious. Isn't that nice to know, guys? You're trying to figure out which way would Jesus go? You know that you could make an argument that he was very rebellious? 
He is going to stick it to the religious system of that day, and he's going to violate things all over the place. I mean, you could just see it. He's going to heal right in front of him. It's like, oh, God, bye. by the way, guys, you see what I'm doing? Oh, just heal the guy. What do you think about that? I mean, in many ways, you could almost say, oh, that's Bobby Kennedy all over the place. At the same time, he is going to fulfill the law. He is never once going to violate it. So you could say, well, he's a law keeper. Yeah, and he also seems to be a lawbreaker at different points, but he's never a lawbreaker. He's never rebellious, and he's not religious. What is he? He, is, he was, is, and always will be love. You see, love is that middle line that does not play either side. It's always valuing the relationship above the rule or above that craving to violate something. And so for all of us, what we're submitting to is the leadership of God over our life, recognizing that we could easily be pulled one way or the other because we're human. Humanly speaking, we're Hoover and Bobby in almost every situation. And we're going to go one way or the other. However, God wants to train us as the body of Christ not to function like Hoover nor like Bobby, but like him. And he is love. When the cloud moves, how do you respond? So in my life, I have had many cloud movements. I would say right now is a cloud movement in my life. It's a cloud moving season. And it's, it's been a unique strain for me in many regards. I'm, I'm delighting in it and I, I'm rejoicing in the cloud movement, but everything in my life is shifting. Everything in my life is changing. And I have had many leveling up points. In fact, a heightened level of, of them in my life in the past, I would say eight to 10 months. It's like, whoa, God, uh, we could slow this down. I mean, I'm 52. I, I, I feel like I should be moving a little slower now. I mean, I'm sort of like getting closer to that retirement era of my life. You know, I'm supposed to maybe shuffle instead of run. And yet God's moving me forward. We're going through as a, as a family, the book, No Compromise right now, which is Melody Green's story of Keith Green. And I, I'm reading about this young at the time in the book right now, he's 21. And I'm reading about this young 21-year-old who sounds very similar to a 21-year-old Eric. And there's so many things. It's like, yeah, I remember that. I remember that vibrancy. I remember that fight. I remember that willingness to speak in that situation. I remember that. And here's my thought. I don't want to become Hoover. I don't want to lose that vitality. I, and it's so easy to do it. Remember when, when I was that age, when I'm 21 to 23 especially, I can't tell you how many times I heard this quote from leaders. Yeah, when I was young, I was just like you. And what the indication was is you'll grow out of that. And I remember thinking to myself, I never want to become like you. When they were saying, I never want to become like you. Well, guess what? I need a fresh sermon in my soul to say, Eric, remember, you don't want to become like them. Remember that version of church that you said you, you needs to change in America? Yeah, don't be a leader of that form of church. I want to have that vibrancy still, and I do not want to get stuck in the mud like Hoover. So when the cloud moves, how do you respond? Lord, take me onward, upward. Take me out of my comfort zone. I don't care if it's all new. I don't care if it's in a different country. I don't care if it's in a different language. I want to go where you go. I don't want to justify why I should stay here. Before Ellerslie started, Leslie and I had a very clear sense that we were supposed to sell everything and move to Nicaragua. And 
we were actually moving in that direction. And we came to the place where we were actually excited about it. But you know what Nicaragua represents? A foreign country, yes, but also a different language. And a language that I'm not very good at. And my strength in this culture is my language. I'm really good with the English language. And God was literally asking me to go in a direction where I don't have a strength. And he would have to be my strength. Ah, yes, Lord. And this is, this is the heritage of my life. This is the heritage of this ministry. Constant adaptation. Constant willingness to level up. Whatever you want, God will do it. But I see the propensity in me to pull a hoover. To say, enough. Plant tent stakes right here. This is a good enough place. As opposed to saying, onward, God. I want to move where you go. So when the cloud moves, how do you respond? How about this one, guys? When the cloud doesn't move, how do you respond? So at the same time I have these clouds moving, I also have some clouds that aren't moving. I have a, a house that I have to maintain on the other side of town that I'm not living in because I'm selling it, but it hasn't sold. But I have to keep maintaining. I have another house that I'm supposed to move in that hasn't finished, so I can't move in it. So I'm in these rental places, like these odd locations, right? I think I've, what are, what are we on our third move so far over the, the training season? And, you know, that isn't what I like. The, the cloud's not moving. It's like, hey, we're supposed to like move into the house, right? And yet it hasn't. So how am I going to respond to that? So it's funny here, this is like the dichotomy of my life. I have things that are moving, changing all around me. Then I have certain things that never seem to move. They're not getting done is the way I could say it. At the same time, what is happening inside of me? I want to cherish where I'm at because God knows I'm supposed to be here right now. God knows that he's brought me here. He's like, Eric, bloom right here. Don't wait to bloom until you get there. Bloom right now. Everything that you need is given to you right now, where you're at. Take it. Don't wait for it. Have you ever had it where you postpone and say, when I get to this point, then? Famous last words spiritually, guys. Right here, right now. The cloud has you where you're at. So thrive right here, right now. The Ellerslie gene dilemma. Trying to find that balance between old values and new times. This has been a very significant challenge for Ellerslie. We started at Ellerslie, and our, one of our principal points was honor. And we want, I mean, very Hoover-esque. It was like, we're going to run the FBI uh, system here, and we're going to be marked by honor, because honor has almost dissipated from the church. The way men behave as men, women behave as women, let's do this with excellence. And so, you know, the men wore slacks at Ellerslie, uh, and I don't remember what the women wore. I don't think it was necessarily just... It had to be dresses, but it was nice. Everyone dressed business casual. That would have been our description, business casual. And uh, look at some of you. You're not even dressed business casual. What's happened to this place, right? You could say that. In other words, Bobby Kennedy has come in and taken off his, shoot, his suit coat and loosened his tie at Ellerslie. And that was, it was a very unique thing for us as leadership to, to realize because when Ellerslie started, dress code meant something different than it does now. Now it means something different. For instance, hats indoors. When we're starting, I mean, when I was growing up, my grandpa wouldn't even allow me to go in the house if I had a hat on. It was disrespectful to his house. Now, it doesn't say the same thing. It doesn't mean the same thing. 
And so for everyone to, to recognize, to follow the adaptations of a culture which are not moral, but to recognize that there's a different way that we communicate, you'll notice I'm wearing jeans. Well, that was a big decision for Ellerslie because we didn't wear jeans. By the way, uh, I'm very happy to be wearing jeans. And it's hard to find me in anything but jeans anymore. I think I spent so many years not wearing jeans. Now it's just like jeans only, jeans only. Now, if, if the cloud moves and God's like, slacks? Like, no! Uh, that would be the next movement of a cloud for me. That would be a challenge. But the key is that we learn how to relate to a culture, not based on our rules, but based on what actually is going to be the most impacting for them. If I need to compromise the gospel, I need to compromise the word of God to try and reach someone, then something's wrong. But there are subtle things that are always altering, like clothing is a classic illustration for it, where really that doesn't matter at the level we sometimes make it matter. But I want to reach you guys, not just get you to dress a certain way. What, what good have I done in your soul if I have you dress in a certain way and because of the way I'm making you dress, you totally miss the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's part of the unique tensions that we deal with as ministers of the gospel. So how do we hold on to the ancient paths and sing a new song? Now, there's the balance right there. We're called to walk ancient paths. Ancient, meaning old right? This is an old path that hasn't ever changed. It's the same path. And yet on that path, we're supposed to sing a new song. You see, there's a constant old meets new tension in our souls. And by the way, guys, I've already given you the solution. It's called love. Love honors the old path, but it's always ready with a fresh song to sing. And knowing how to live with both right and left hands in this walk, in this journey, is very significant. Dump the old religious deadness overboard. But don't replace it with the muddy paws of rebellion. Instead, consider allowing God to stock you full of his amazing love instead. What's our destination, guys? Because that's really all that matters. We're walking this path. We want the old path, but we want to sing a new song. Where are we headed? We're headed towards Jesus to reveal Jesus, to show Jesus. And there's various things, just like the, the sidewalk shove and the hotel shush, which at first seem like they have a Jesus point when in actuality they're contradicting the nature of Jesus. And what we want to do is remove all contradictions. We want to reveal Jesus. And even when we're coming in, we're renovating something like Bobby. The way we renovate and we show honor and respect to Hoover in our life is just as important so always moving forward down the ancient path. Revelation 14.4, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. In the Old Testament, they follow a cloud. In the New Testament, we follow the lamb wherever he goes. If he stops, we stop. If he moves forward, we move forward. And this is Christianity. Romans 5.5, 5, and the way we do it, is with this love. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's shed abroad in our hearts. We have been given everything that we need to walk this path with excellence. So it's not with rebellion or with religion. It's with Jesus. Jesus is the one who leads us, and he will walk us up to every one of those leveling up points 
and he will give us the grace. We have a tendency to handle those leveling up either with complaints, like I don't want to go further, or we'll lean on our own strength to try and do it. I have a grace in my life that is hard to describe, but it's real and it's powerful. And I have a buoy. It's like I'm in this vast ocean, but I have been lifted up. And waves that would really that would typically crush a, a normal human, I'm able to bob up on top of them. And there have been a couple moments in my life where God has allowed me to taste life for a few seconds without that grace, just so that I'm freshly acquainted with the gift that he has given me. One time I was in uh, Boston Airport, and I was, had my roller uh, suitcase, and Leslie was walking next to me, and we're going through to the, uh, I don't know if it was to the rental car place or to the, uh, the pickup place for uh, suitcases, and I suddenly had this removal of grace in my life. So strange. I know it's hard for me to even describe, but I felt like a mere, mere mortal. And it doesn't that sound funny to say it that way, but I felt like a normal human. I didn't know, I forgot what a normal human felt like until I didn't have the grace of God for a second. As I'm walking, I'm like, what's going on? And I felt vulnerable, fragile, like I, I, I could be struck at any moment by anything. And it was, I don't know, 30 seconds after that of crying out to God, like, God, what has happened? What's going on? Total silent inside my head, never even saying anything to Leslie, just walking through Boston Logan Airport. And then it returned. And I've never forgotten that moment. It was like, that's all I needed to remember. I live a supernatural life. I have supernatural ability. There's a reason why I don't fear. There's a reason why I feel totally secure in the midst of a crumbling world. It's because I have grace. And yet sometimes God will allow that grace to come to a point where what he's calling me to, that grace needs to increase. What do I do then? Do I complain? Do I grumble because my grace doesn't seem sufficient for it? His grace is always sufficient. But he says, Eric, reach out for it. I want you to go after more of me. There is always what you need in Christ. You do not need to stop short and say, I can't go there because I don't have enough. Or you don't need to dig in your own pockets and say, God, I'll figure this out on my own. Whatever he's called you to, he will give you the supply. Father, I ask that you would demonstrate that fact to us. We are called to live supernatural lives, and I pray that you would allow us, freshly remind us of that truth today. Lord, that we would cherish the work of grace in our lives, and that we wouldn't pull a Hoover or a Bobby, but that we would pull a Jesus Christ with our lives. We love you and trust you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.